This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Recollections Radio. Monday morning tea time is now all about sharing memories with you, old and new, of life in Dunedin. Bringing you stories, interviews and music from times past and inviting you to share your memories with us. Presented by Jill Bowie and Kay Mercer, the team behind Dunedin Public Library's Scattered Seeds Archive. Thanks to generous funding by the New Zealand Libraries Partnership Project. Recollections Radio, Monday mornings at 11 on 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. and welcome to Recollections Radio for another week. How are you, Jill? I'm very good. How are you? Excellent. I'm doing really well. I had a, another busy week. You've had a particularly busy week because you're working on a top secret project. I know. I'm working on a top secret exhibition for the Reed Gallery on the third floor of the City oh. Library with two other of our library staff team. And it's been a real learning curve because I've never been involved in an exhibition like this. So just deadlines and dates and just all of the little bits that you don't realise go into exhibitions. Yeah, it's um, a, lot, a lot, goes, lot goes on behind the scenes that people may not realise. And it takes a lot of preparation, does it not? Yeah, leading up it to does. It. And it's yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, all these deadlines way before the exhibition opens. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty impressive. But, um, so yeah, I'm really why, excited. So that's why when it actually happens, it's all very slick and, you know, looks yes, exactly. yeah, very well yeah. prepared. So, yes. It's very exciting. So you, you can't you can't actually give us the details of the exhibition no, or even what no. it's about. But you can give us some no. insight maybe into so what goes on. So you, you're doing some research at the moment, aren't you? Yes, we're doing some research. And uh, so we're just selecting items for the cases. And so we've got quite tight deadlines because our bindery here in the library, they create all the supports for each, for each item. So we need to meet with Kathleen from the bindery next week. And so, so this is April we're not opening till June, so that just gives you an idea oh, of how yes, long it takes to, work. to get. It is. It's they, they make all in the bindery. They make all those beautiful the settings, the ports for the books, um, yes. and the other materials that go in. And they also prepare the beautiful cards with all the information. Yes, so you, the captions. You presumably are preparing the captions as well for them to, yes, to transfer onto the cards. So, so it yes. all look beautiful. So it's very yes. exciting. Exciting. It is really exciting and mm. it'll be a really beautiful exhibition and uh, just to highlight the amazing collection we have up <laughs> in the McNabb collection. Yeah, Without fantastic. giving too much away. <laughs> no, no, I can tell you where it's yeah. from, I just can't tell you what it is. <laughs> okay, no, so it'd be wonderful. Well, we look forward to that. So that is going to be in May, did June. you say? June. June. Oh, June. Yes. Okay, so we've got got that to look forward to. Oh, maybe we'll have some we updates. Updates on future shows, I perhaps. Think so, yeah, yeah, fantastic. So. Yeah. Oh well, and it'd be really good, good to have have the three of us come and talk at some stage. Yes, about, that would be great. About, Let's do that. Let's yeah. do that. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we'll keep keep the keep our listeners posted on that. Uh, what have I been doing? Well, I have been updating and finalising our timeline that I started way back in December. I think it was November, which is the history of library services in Dunedin. So we started with the books that came off the Philip Lang and we moved on to um, the little volunteer libraries and community libraries and that sort of thing. So uh, that's been really interesting. And I finalised it this week by adding in the volunteer library information, the community library information and a, a lovely story of Waitati Library, which really piqued my interest. And I thought I might share that with you today. The first Waitati Library was opened in the local school in 1867 with money raised by the Blueskin Mutual Improvement and Debating Society, which I'm going to shorten to MIDS from now on because that's a long word. 
Um, the school, <laughs> the school was some distance from the village, so the problem was it was a long way to go to get the books. So they proposed that they have an alternative, more convenient home for the library in the middle of town. And the Athenaeum Trust planned a mechanics institute and reading room. And the mechanics institute and reading rooms are a common theme with our communities. A lot of them pub together and funded these places where people could learn to improve their skills and a general leisure reading as well. So the Athenaeum Trust acquired some land in preparation for that. And by 1908, Three, the Mids had raised sufficient funds to build a little wooden library in Pitt Street. And there's a really beautiful picture of it on the Scattered Seeds archive. It's a sweet little wooden building. You can find that on duneden.recollect.co.nz. But the books were finally moved two years later. <laughs> two years they later? Had, Amazing. <laughs> they, had, they had to wait two years because one of the, the members of the trust was very concerned with it being a wooden building that it might burn down with all the books in. So I was going to say, a wooden... A wooden building full of books probably is... It probably was a bit of a risk, but it, it sort of begs the question, why did you build it of wood in the first place? But anyway... Well, that is a good point. Um, yeah. So they, they went to the trouble of building this beautiful wee library and then they, he was reluctant to release the books into it. So they stayed in the school until 1905 and then as soon as the chap died, they moved all the books and it didn't burn down. It's, it, it was there for some time. And These things a, take time. They do. So yes, there's a, a lovely bit of history about the Waitati Library there on the Scattered Seeds website. So do have a look at that and it covers all of our libraries book, book buses and the community and volunteer libraries that have been sprung up over the years and what happened to them so I've really enjoyed working on that and obviously looking at the beautiful a, photos. And it's a pretty impressive history when you look back at how far back our library services go. Absolutely. It's really amazing. Yeah so and lucky. it's it's really wonderful to me as a, as a working in libraries that almost as soon as foot touched soil people realised that they needed books and they even brought them with them on the Philip Lang. I think it was 100 books they brought with them because they re recognised the importance of reading. It was Bibles and other things to, to expand the mind, to bring comfort, to learn. They realised and recognised that reading was really important to their communities to make their communities thrive. So libraries have been that's, part of, yeah. That's the thing. You build your shelter and then you build your libraries in exactly. that sort of yep. order, you know. Yep, yep. <laughs> priorities right absolutely and that still holds true today how important the libraries are so well at least we think so <laughs> exactly we're, no and we i think we're right <laughs> anyway today we are going to be listening to neil gamble from the tyree historical society who uh, we're going to start on part two of the interview with him so as you know we covered the floods and the drainage on the tyree last week and this week neil is going to be talking more about his experiences farming and growing up farming working with his father on the tyree and all those experiences so it's a lovely story to tell and we'll listen to that but let's have some music first shall we and this one is by jeff lynn it's from his album alone in the universe and it's called when i was a boy when i was a boy i had a dream all about the things I'd like to be Soon as I was in my bed Music played inside my head When I was a boy I had a dream When I was a boy I learned to play Fire into the night and drift away a boy I had a dream and rain 
When I Was a Boy by Jeff Lynn. Well, I think it's time we heard part two of Neil Gamble's interview. So here he is talking about farming on the tiring. Like in my father's day, 15 or 20 cows might have been an average herd. Gosh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because remember, they, they had cows, they probably had a few pigs, they yeah. grew crop, every farm grew crop. That's why the thrashing mill came into it, is to thrashing grain, yeah. because they had to feed their horses and all that so stuff. So this is the big thrasher you've got in the machine shed. That's right, yeah. right, yeah, that one. That's where all that came in. Yeah, no, that that's right. And even in 1980, oh, a big herd would have been about 100. Yeah. I think I had 60 or 70 or something. And, and there was probably over 70 farmers, dairy farmers, yeah. uh, affected. Some ways easier because they had to, they had to shift their, I had to shift mine up to the slopes of Mangatua mm. before somebody donated grazing up Lee Stream. So everybody sort of shep- shepherded their animals up there. Some went onto the state highway. Blocked <laughs> so that. they parked them on the highway until yeah, the floods went? Yeah, they them on the highway. Wow. Uh, so there's lots of stuff in the papers on that. But today it's different. Like, I mean, the herds are 500, 600, yeah. 700. Um, where are you going to put them? Mm. Where are you going to put them? In 1980, the, out from the Mangatua Road, along the foothills of Mangatua, there was only um, only two or three dairy farms oh, in that area. Most of them were sheep. Yeah. And, and most of them, that season, had had a big growth, and there, and there was mainly tufty, coxfooty grass. And look, you could bang. There was hundreds of cows went up there mm. from the lowland, mm. and uh, they could hold them there for about a week. No bother. Today, virtually every farm along there is all associated with dairy. Mm. And, uh, and a, a there is farms. no capacity now to farms, take on 1,000, 2,000 cows, no. whatever it was. So no. next time it happens, it's going to be a wee bit dire, I feel. Well, we've come close a few times over the last few years. Mm. We've come close. Yeah. And we're, we're, you'll get it again one day. Yeah. You'll hope it'll be another day, not, not yeah. the day on there. Yeah. Yes, so that's right. So like you mentioned about the thrashing mill, that's why contractors were popular. Farmer couldn't afford a mill. It took about 12 men to work and pulled with a traction engine. And, and But everybody had a crop. Today, there's only about one farm on the Tauri that grows crop. 
mm. uh, as in wheat and yes. barley. So uh, my father contracted his thrashing mill was built in 1898, the one that's here in the pack, and it was bought by Brown Brothers in Mosgill, um, who ran about three of those units with traction engines, thrashing mills, stationary balers, chaff cutters, the whole works. And they had different runs. They, so they this were... is like a mobile mill, effectively, yep, isn't it? Yep, it is a... a it's the forerunner to a combine harvester today. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, only they didn't drive around. Yeah. So they you had to cut the crop with a binder and put it in what they called sheaves, mm. uh, which was a, a basically mm. a bundle. Of, I've seen those tied together. Yes, yeah. that's right. And and then they would fork them onto a dray maybe, and either take it straight to the mill. Not normally though, because it was still a bit green when they mm. cut it. So they would take it and make a stack, a round stack with a nice peak on it, but mm. like an ice cream, and it matured there. Right. And then when the contractor came with the thrashing mill, he would move from farm to farm and and pull it up beside the stacks. It would be two or three stacks together. Right. And they would uh, set the mill up because it had to be leveled and all this, and then he had to run a belt to the traction engine, all this stuff. And so they would do each farm. As mm. in, um, a father would turn in at the Ellington Bridge, cut the fence, drive off the road into a farm, and he would come out on the Henley Berwick Road. Right. He went to every single farm yeah. had grain. Right. So you merely cut the boundary fence. So he was kept busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, a, um, you know, and it wasn't until it only died out. On, the last year it worked was 1961. It was slowly being replaced from the mid-50s with the combine harvesters. Mm. Yeah, which is a hell of a lot easier. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I worked on the mill as, when you worked on the thrashing mill as a young guy or, or a beginner, you were kind of the apprentice and you got the chaffy job. Everybody else, I think the important man was the feeder who stood on top feeding it because the the mill needed, uh, like you could damage the mill by not feeding correctly. Right, uh, so you had so to know what you were doing. So a good feeder was mm. a brilliant guy to have mm. and my father had a brilliant guy on that. The mill owner was probably next in line is the big chief, and he normally worked in what they call the bag hole, which is where the grain came out into the bags, right. and he overseen that and the traction engine and, and all that. And then there's people that forked, there'd be about six or seven men forking the sheaths, either from the stack or a dray, mm-hmm. up to the man on, on top. Right. And then there's another three or four or five, because remember the used straw came out, the ele- what's called the elevators, and they got elevated way up, in the air, and the straw fell down, and those guys stood underneath the straw, falling down, oh. and built a big straw stack. Ah. So there was all those people, but the, the lowliest person was the man called a chaffy, and that was, um, you, you had the straw going up, you had the man feeding the stuff, you had the grain coming out at the back. But in the middle at the front, there was things like the thistle heads and rubbish, and yeah. just rubbish, yeah. would come out, spew out a mouth there, my father would make a big, I don't know, apron if you like, that's not the name for it, out of sacks, open them all up and sew them all together and then put a big pole in it would be about two to three metres by about four or five metres and you'd pull it with a horse under the, the front of the mill and you ran a, another wire back to the second one and uh, so that all the stuff would spew out, all this rubbish. And the, the chaffy job then would be to move that one forward, tow the second one into place, unhook it, go away to the far corner of the paddock somewhere and you turned the horse round and backed him over the top and turned the sheet, tipped it out right. the sheet and came in. A sort of a job. <laughs> uh, you were right in the middle of all the rubbish and the yeah. dust and the, yeah. and the horses. When I did it, the horses hadn't been, you know, tractors were well in vogue. 
and some of the older farmers we worked for still had horses and they weren't getting much use so they're a bit windy about the mill right. and all the noises because right. the mill sort of going vroom, 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 yeah. vroom, vroom, and the horses were and I don't know how many times a blasted dresser horse stood on my foot oh. um, <laughs> well not my favourite job no um, did no. they ever just take off the horses they didn't yeah run. yeah they they frequently did and just dragged oh. me along oh, no. we did have um it's not funny uh, but... it's a funny how you don't find things out for many years but i just left school i was yeah. 15 and the man the, t- the the chief man the feeder uh, who was also my neighbor i bought him out mm. so uh, later on so i got i got the last laugh but anyway <laughs> he he just worked away quietly all day but he was observing everything, and he was watching me with the horse. He knew I didn't like horses. Yeah. And um, I would go and tip the stuff, and I'm coming back with the horse, dragging the sheep, because now I've got to get close to the mill, unhook the sheep, and hook up to that the first one so I can pull this through yeah, eventually. Yeah. So I'm coming back to the mill, and the mill's are rum, 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 as they do. He's just watching out of the corner of his eye, and when I got quite close, suddenly the mill would go, oh. and the horse would just turn and gallop off and I'm hanging on <laughs> to the bridle trying to stop it that's when I normally got stood on oh. and uh, eventually I'd be able to get it back and it was okay so yeah. I used to go on you know morning tea times like this a blasted horse <laughs> takes off and people just said <clears> oh, yeah. and uh, as I say I was grown and married and everything else many years later before I discovered that what was happening was when I came back to the mill with the horse my friend up on top who was feeding it there is a way of when you're feeding a mill with the sheaves, you cut the, you had a little leather pouch or glove with a knife in it right. and you cut the string, mm. which is holding it together, and you <clears> let it just glide into the mill so it goes... Yeah. So it's smooth. Yeah, mm. it's smooth. It goes... But if there's somebody coming near with a horse and you think, I'm going... You cut it and let it go with a bang and the mill goes... <laughs> and the horse goes... So he did it on purpose. Yes. Oh. And I, I never knew... You see, yeah. I'm, I'm a newbie on that. Yeah. And I never realised that till many, many years later. Oh. Uh, I think, you're old devil. Yeah, They're always mean to the apprentices, aren't they? <laughs> oh. Apprentices' life is hell. <laughs> so you never gave up? You kept farming yes. until you yeah. moved on? That's true. Uh, I also followed the contracting thing. In fact, yeah. um, oddly, um, I got my first job when I was 61. What? How's that for <laughs> Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. You mean uh, that's the first time you were employed by someone else? The as opposed first to time I was ever employed. I see. And that, that was with, yeah, yeah. by the AI company, and, and I was over 60. Because I left school at 15. My father didn't keep well. So from the time I was 10, I used to do some of the contracting. Gosh. This is with tractors and that. And uh, he was quite unwell. So I left school at 15. I hated school anyway, so let's face it. Yeah. And um, I went straight into running part of the contracting business. But also, I contract tractor drove for many many people yeah i i'd grow uh work about 100 acres at a time for some of the grain farmers mm. so i was an itinerant sort of tractor driver i suppose so my life was i, I never had a full-time job i would do a month for one person working ground mm. and then go to another one and do the same mm. in between time working there contracting mm. yeah and eventually leased the home farm and became a dairy farmer as well as a contractor mm. so i was self well you i was always self-employed i suppose and, and life went on like that you know we eventually inherited well not inherited but bought three farms but still doing contracting mm. so in my own name so it wasn't until we sold the dairy farm when i was about 
1952, as I say, I was running a tractor painting business by now. I painted 550 tractors in about Gosh. 10 years. Wow. Uh, love spray painting. I was doing that, but I started working for a dairy genetics company on commission, so mm. I wasn't an employee, you know. Mm. And that went right up until I was over 60. They changed the way they worked and, and took me in as a permanent employee mm. with a company vehicle. And that was my first job, and I was... Uh, I was over 60. The, the company always laughed about that. They said, oh, we've done the country a real favour and given a guy a job at 60. <laughs> first so were, job. Were, were you the apprentice at 60? Yeah, I must have been the apprentice. <laughs> yeah. So it was just, and I suppose there's still people doing that, that make their own way, yeah. leave school. and um, But I hadn't sort of thought about it in those regards, but I'd never had a job. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here at the beautiful... Tara Historical Park. Are you open on Sundays? Yep, we're open from beginning of October till the end of May each year on Sundays, two, two o'clock till four. Mostly volunteers coming that come and open up on mm. those days and sometimes our committee. But yes, we are also open to groups. Like it could be a bus tour of some description or whatever. Yeah. And, and we can open virtually on any day provided we get a, a bit of warning so By we can find someone yeah. to open up. The Vintage Machinery Club just beside us is mostly open on a Wednesday yes. because they come and tinker and tell stories on Wednesdays, mm. so yeah. they're, they're happy to take uh, visitors. But we're only, historicals only open on two to four on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you even have weddings in this historic church here. Well, oddly enough, we have many, many, many more weddings than the local church. <laughs> I think possibly the last yeah. wedding in the local church might have been 20-odd years ago. Good heavens. Don't hold me to that, but yeah. it could be. I know the guy who got married, and he's since divorced so oh. <laughs> quite some time ago. But we've been up to about three or four a year. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a beautiful We city. had one two weeks ago. Fabulous. Because mm. it's just it's such a... It's, it's overlooking the Tyree River and the and Outram. It's on a hill. Yep. If you haven't been here, you, you head over the bridge at Outram, take a right... And then a left, go up the driveway, and you you come to this. It's effectively a, a small village of beautiful historic buildings. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's a small village, six buildings uh, dotted around here, and then you carry on up the hill a bit further, and uh, you come across the Otago Vintage Machinery Club. That's right. They lean towards obviously vintage machinery because mm. that's what they're about. But strangely, that club has the biggest collection of Dunedin early industrial heritage. Uh-huh. Of anyone, there's a lot of very early industrial stuff. They've, they've even got the crane that helped build, build the urns law, um, for example. And there's everything from hat making machines to tea bag machines. Um, tea bag. Tea bag. See, we've I'd be the, interested in that. We've got the Bell <laughs> Tea Tea Bag machine. Well, they you, have, you must they, introduce us to the gentleman oh, up there. We, I think we could we could make another show about this. Yeah, yeah. No, that yeah. that would be well worth. Looking yeah, at because they do have yeah. not only farm machinery but a lot of industrial mm. Dunedin industrial machinery. Yeah. So do, the they, have, will, do yeah. they have things from the 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 Tyree woolen mill? Uh, I'm not sure they have. Right. You'd have to ask. Yeah. Um, they might have some stuff. Seems the sort of thing they would have. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, they, they've got a seed dressing machine that used to be a, a stock agent. This random. They've got a uh, a bull, caterpillar bulldozer that came from McMurdo Sound. For example, you know, it's oddball. Weird, yeah, not weird, but stuff that you wouldn't normally find in yeah. a farm. How did it get machinery. here? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we like stories like that, don't we, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. No, they do have a 
Uh, the two organisations now work together very well. Yeah, it's a nice partnership, isn't it? It's a good partnership because yeah. if, if Historical gets something like a stationary engine or what, yeah. uh, and they have had them over the years, nowadays we just ship them straight up to the vintage and so on yeah. here, and they can restore them, do them up, whatever. It's not the Historical's thing yeah. to restore machinery. Mm. That's my thing, but not <laughs> the society. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so that whereas we have general memorabilia, yeah. And, and stuff. Household. But the, the two work together. And, like, I mean, yeah. I'm on both, obviously. So, um, yeah. They, they, it all works for they They assist us financially with running the toilets and yeah. and all that stuff. There's, yeah, it worked very well. Yeah. So you yeah. can come out here for a beautiful picnic. There's some lovely grounds mm. outside with gorgeous trees and picnic tables. And you can come out for the day, have a beautiful setting for a picnic. Enjoy the wonderful museum and the kids can run around all the buildings and imagine what it might have been like in their grandparents or great grandparents' <laughs> day and take a wander up a few yards down the road and see the vintage machinery. So it's a really wide picture of life on the Tyree. It's a, a very wide, yes. Yeah. Most, we are the only museum centering our interests on the West Tyree yeah. and Mosgill area there because yeah. there is no museum as like that in Mosgill. So we're the first one after Toitu. Out here, we're the only one specialising in the general Tyree area because the, the next one will be Middlemarch and then Tokomariro and Milton. And we have quite a wee bit to do with Toko as well because we kind of share a boundary mm. uh, beyond Barrett that occasionally you get together with other one or two others and uh, museums and have a bit of a chat about them that's, how right. Things are. Yeah. that's right and you you assist people with genealogy questions as well for yes, families we out in the probably tiring? get one or two queries a week yeah on genealogy yeah. Uh, it seems to be getting more and more yeah because well, we're losing the people that we could have gone to to ask these questions yeah so. yeah that's the problem yeah um, i've been really really lucky because i have a great memory of where people were and that my father was the same and because my father was a contractor he he worked on every farm you might say in the west tyree area as have i you see mm. so we got to know farmers all over the west tyree area you don't think about it much but the average farmer doesn't have much to do with anyone beyond his neighbours mm. quite often. Yeah. In the so, you, 19, so you were a way of connecting them all. Yes, yeah. uh, well, in a way. And, mm. and like, I mean, I used to, even as a kid, because I used to follow my father around. Yeah. And in those days, they brought out the scone and tea and all, mm. you know, and there would be a chat. And I used to yeah. just sit and listen. Yeah. And, and, and I, I learned the way the old guys talked. Uh, yeah, because everybody's different. Mm. And, and the sayings they had in different things and it's never left me funny thing i can't remember a damn thing a school teacher's ever told me but <laughs> i can remember even now yeah. you know the words and the descriptions and what these old guys mm. said and when you're having a cup of tea and that, that was a wee advantage just for us i didn't realize that until there was a water scheme a community water scheme put in it must have been during the 80s which comes from a stream in berwick the farmers had to put in labour. You had to do one or two days a week, I think. Mm. Went for about two years. So you put aside that doubt and you, and you headed away into the hills at Berwick or you might have been the hills somewhere else or you're laying pipes all over the Torrey. And, of course, at lunchtime, you'd all sit down and have a talk. Yeah. I knew every farmer mm. because that. what I didn't realise was one or two of my neighbours, they would come with me and say, Who, who's, who's that bloke over there? Mm. He only just lives down the road. I've never seen him before. <laughs> and I'd think, oh, I'd never thought about that because a lot of farmers, they farm their yeah. farm and they'll work with their neighbour, yeah. the person further away. Yeah. Not so, so much of a sense of community then. Well, each well, there is various wee communities, but mm -hmm. as a contractor, we were working through the whole lot. That's right. So that yeah. we knew 
the wee community at Woodside and mm. Otakai and yeah. Henley, yeah. We, we tended to work with them yeah. all so that it was just natural to me to know mm. them. So mm. that now when a lot of the genealogy requests come in, we had one, the last, just about one of the last of this particular family. Mm. At one time they had four or five or maybe more farms along Mungatua. Right. They were in a big way. One of the youngest, well, the last of them, and she was possibly about 60 or something, came here and, and gave me some of the stuff pertaining to the family, talked about stuff, and I was talking about their farms. She said, I don't know where any of the stuff is. I said, right, you come out one day and I'll take you around all the farms oh, that your family once had. How wonderful. So she did. Yeah. And, and we went to all the farms, yeah. and one of them was owned by a good friend of mine, a JP and a leading guy in the area, He's on one of the farms, and, and he just welcomed her, oh, you know, yeah. and took her. And, and behind his house is a an old hut, I suppose it's a hut, and that's what some of her forebears lived in before Goodness they built the me. house. Right. And it's still got the original wallpaper from the 1800s oh, and all that stuff. Beautiful. And she was just blown away. Oh, but I know, I knew where all these things were, mm. and she didn't. And, and this yeah. pertains to a lot of people. Like, sometimes we're foxed a bit yeah. as to whether we're... Generally, if it's happened since about 1900... I can usually identify Gosh. exactly where the farm is and yeah. take them yeah. and show them. And that means a lot to oh, them. Oh, it would be huge. Yeah. You must get a real sense of reward from that, oh, seeing it's, people's it's, faces. Yes, it's a great feeling to be able to help somebody yeah. and, and share some of the knowledge that I had. I may have forgotten about it. And then they say, yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Um, and he used to do this, and this is what he used to do yeah. over there. And, and I remember all that. Our secretary's elder is the one that does the computer genealogy mm. she's brilliant at finding stuff yes. and uh, so she handles all that side of it and can come off pages and pages on families but mm. i come into it on the ground if i remember the farm and that i can mm. i cannot because sometimes it's been split up since it's whatever yeah. and i can indicate exactly so you've where... got the human stories yes. behind that. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah that's right that's a great partnership yeah. It's a good a good partnership. I'm only yeah. lucky because my father was similar. He remembered or talked about... I used to always sit in as a kid when him and his brothers were talking and, and, and listen to the... They had very descriptive stories about people and farmers and that. And I just sucked all that in. Yeah. So I, hence, I can go back much beyond where I was born mm. because of the stories I used to hear from my father and his brothers. Yeah. So I get a fair idea where... But even... Like my father died at 97. He was very uh, astute memory-wise up to yes. the last day. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. Because I've tried to write one or two local histories and things, mm. and you get to a stage and I think, oh, God, who was that place? I'd go to see my father and say, hey, you know where so-and-so lives up that road? Yeah, yeah. I was, who was there in the 20s? Oh, well, he said, so-and-so bought that in uh, 1918, and yeah. then this other people bought it and then, mm-hmm. and then, and I'd write all that down. Yeah. And he was as clear as a bell with that. Uh, maybe I've inherited a wee bit of that. And, I think uh, so. <laughs> to try and I'm not good on the dates, of course, but I know roughly where people were. Yeah. Um, you can generally bounce stuff off him, and he always knew because he always travelled around a lot. My father was chairman of directors of Mamona Dairy Factory. Yeah. He formed the Mamona Pipe Band, and that incorporated a lot of farmers mm. in the area. He and of course he had the thrashing mill, so he operated, as I say, all mm. over the Tyree, and he he had a fair idea. And so, he brought up at Riverside. He had the knowledge of the Mosgill side of the yes. Tyree River. Yes. And and that, that was interesting on its own because going back before all the flood stuff, Riverside, <coughs> there was no protection there, so they got flooded frequently. Yes. And where my father... And, well, they and still it, do get flooded, don't they? They do. Yeah. It's not as frequently as... Like, it might have been two or three times a year, whereas now mm. 
Yes, they get flooded, and it's a beauty when they get it yes, because exactly. of the trip system that floods the upper pond and the lower pond. Yeah. And their day, they were right beside the river, and there wasn't. So they had a boat tied up outside. There was a hut where about six or seven of the kids lived. Yeah. And uh, he said they'd just be going about life as usual, jump out of bed in the morning up to your knees in water. Oh, goodness. Uh-oh, another flood. So the boat was always tied to the open the window, <laughs> hop in the boat. Just part of life. Yeah, and it was just part of life. So they would, uh, the, where the farm was, they had a big mound of dirt, so they'd mm, hold the cows up. Mm. Yeah, and so the kids would take the boat, often with a can of milk or something in it, and they'd, they'd row away off to go to school and yeah, deliver the milk me. on the way. And that was just normal. And, and like mm. a story I usually tell about him, him and I, like, there's what, there's nine in the family, so it's probably at least six or seven. You're in times of flood, the bed was out of the water in their hut, but the, you're up to your knees yeah. outside. I say, oh, hey, after tea, let's go and visit so-and-so. There was the people next door. It could have been Fowlers or it could have been someone else. I've forgotten now. But the kids were about the same age. Yeah. Let's go over and see them. Yeah, okay. So they uh, all pile in the boat. Off they go rowing, and it's, uh, they'd row away across to these other people, and they'd play a few games and do whatever there, and then quite dark, they'd say, better go home. <laughs> so off they'd go again, and this time they had a wee lantern, and one of the kid up the front would hold the lantern out, oh. and they'd be rowing, and they'd say, whoa, 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 run into a gorse bush, back up, back up a oh, bit, goodness. try down a wee bit, right away we go. Yeah. And I was like, oh, hang on, hang on, there's a bit of a fence sticking out of the wood. <laughs> and they'd go back. And this went on so every time. So they're charting new courses through the fields yeah. on their boat. And, and uh, when you think about it, what would, what would Osh or the oh, young children, th- whatever yeah. they call it nowadays, yeah. they'd be horrified. They they'd be taken to court. And like meanwhile, the parents, don't ask me what they're no. doing. Oh, they'd be home they, for dinner. They'd say, yeah, sweet, where are you going? They're like in times of flood. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh. But that was what he was brought up with. Yeah. And um, So no flood frightened him. Uh, no. It's, it's just life, but with more water. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. It's well, quite I could, interesting. I could listen to you all day. <laughs> but I think we probably better draw a line there for now, but perhaps we can come back another day and talk to you, Neil. Absolutely. Uh, and maybe hear a bit more about the, the museum and some of your favourite things. But no for problem. now, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Nice to have visitors up here. Thank you. Wonderful Neil Gamble talking there and we do hope we get a chance to go back to the Tyra Historical Museum and talk to him again. Should we have some more music? I think this one's really appropriate. Let's have Weather With You by Crowded House.
was Crowded House with Weather With You and very appropriate since last week did you know was World Meteorological Day oh no I did not did you know what that is what do we celebrate well (laughs) uh, we didn't we didn't actually but we had lots of rain takes place yeah yeah, so it came along with the rain so it's almost like the weather decided to show itself on the 23rd of March and our thoughts are very much with those people up on the the North Island up in Auckland to and Mm. Gisborne suffering terribly with the flooding and and much like the west coast who are still recovering from the floods earlier in february yeah world meteorological day uh couldn't have come at a more poignant time really Mm. um, with all that's going on happens every year 23rd of march and it commemorates the coming into force on the 23rd of march 1950 of the convention establishing the world meteorological organization which showcases the essential contribution of national meteorological and hydrological services to the safety and well-being of society and it's celebrated with activities around the world so basically they watch the weather they watch the weather and and keep an eye on it and try and keep us safe from it because uh, you know nature is getting wilder it's something quite timely is early warning and early action is the theme for 2022 weather climate and water extremes are becoming more frequent so they say and intense in many parts of the world as a result of climate change more of us it does seem that way that the climate is definitely changing and the weather patterns are changing as well Well, they certainly seem to be more intense and more frequent we seem to be having more one in 100 year floods Mm. well talking of which it reminded me that i'd done some research some years ago about weather on the tyree and it's funny how we always say oh it's unprecedented it's unprecedented but of course people 
people will know that it's not necessarily unprecedented. That word is much overused and we have had some terrible, terrible weather. But it's certainly true, I'd say, that there are more frequent and more intense weather patterns happening around the world. And certainly we've seen quite a few of them in New Zealand. Uh, what I was looking at really was snow and uh, rain because we get a lot of that in Outram. <laughs> Of course. Um, of course. And and nice weather too. But there was an article in the Encyclopedia of New, New Zealand in 1966, which describes the devastating blizzard and flood of 1863 with a long sustained snowfall in July turning quickly to violent flood. So they had both oh, after sure. the unseasonably warm rains that followed. So they had terrible, terrible snow, bitter cold, and then suddenly got warm and it all rained, it all turned to, to water. And flooded everywhere. It was terrible. Then in early August, more blizzard conditions swept in. So they then had more snow. And the Dunedin area experienced almost daily snowfall throughout the entire oh. month. Imagine that. We Nowadays, we get maybe a year, a day or two in the winter, don't we? Um, I know. And I always think uh, sometimes we just have a little light dumping of snow yeah, and the city right. kind of stops <laughs> yeah or, or or a few we're, we're all wanting to have a snow day because we just miss the snow we quite like exactly. it but then yeah and a whole month of snow roads not only became oh. impassable they were impossible you couldn't find them you couldn't find the roads no. and the snow of continued course. the snow continued through the spring and into the summer not returning to normal until christmas no imagine that so what a year months, months and months so yeah we haven't quite got unprecedented weather. Um, no, winter, that sounds winter, worse than I've ever hit. <laughs> and then the, the winter of 1895 wasn't much of an improvement with frost so hard, and this is really sad, frost so hard that iron buckets of water burst and dogs, no. this is horrible, dogs froze in their kennels. Oh, isn't that sad? Oh, that's, that's awful. And oh. yes, I was, I've been looking at papers past and the press re reported on 18th of July that snow in central Otago had driven starving birds to the coast, swarming into orchards and fields around Dunedin. They were so weak and eager for food that people could get close enough to touch them. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? It's just kind of nice and awful at the same time. Yeah, exactly so hungry and there have been so many floods at Outram over the decades but June 1980 which everyone here will remember I'm sure saw the largest known flood in the South Tyree area to date 4,800 hectares were flooded after flood banks at Outram were breached and Neil mentioned Hi. some of that last week as you'll remember a civil defense report dated 1999 confirms two spans of Outram Bridge were destroyed State Highway 1 was closed for weeks the airport was closed for 53 days Gosh, no way Yep, and the railway line was washed out. And around 12 million, and that was in 1980, so goodness knows, well, that's, I'm not a mathematician, exactly. a lot of money in damage and stock losses were re recorded. So you'd get cows floating down the river and that's mm. So, yes. I imagine the cleaning up after that. Oh, I, yeah, it would have taken months. And as, as Neil said, everyone would have had to replant their grass. Mm. It would have gone. Yes. Mm. So and I, I was... I was kind of looking through some photos from Scattered Seeds and we do have some photos of search and rescue out on the Tyree knee deep in water. So yes, um, yeah. so have a that, have an that would have been, what what was that from the eighties or no, it was I think it was two thousand and ten. Yeah, so much more recently. Yeah. Mm. So yes, uh, they're not unprecedented, but they are worrying. No, they're not. Weather is uh, definitely taking a toll on us. So, yes, yes, definitely worth keeping your emergency kit handy and making sure you've got a plan just in case. Yeah. Oh, well, that was very cheerful, wasn't it? <laughs> it wasn't it. <laughs>
one of the things that I did over the weekend was uh, I took a little trip through Central and on the way I stopped at the Beaumont Bridge. Oh, and I've nice. normally never stopped there because I'm always, you know, on my way to oh, go home through. to Alexandra to see yep. my mother. But um, yeah. there were some roadworks and we thought, oh, why don't we just stop? And I could take some photos of the construction of the new bridge. Yeah. But it was a bit oh, foggy. So they weren't oh, foggy. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Right. It's a really pretty and, spot. I've had a picture. It's a beautiful spot. Yeah. 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 And I've yeah. always, every time I go over that bridge, it's, I'm always think, oh, because it's so kind of, it always seems quite rickety and mm. you're kind of bouncing yeah. along it. I didn't uh, realize that the Beaumont Bridge that's there now replaced an earlier structure, which was destroyed oh. in floods of 1878. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Speaking of floods again. Yeah. yeah. So the bridge was completed in 1887. Well, that rickety uh, bridge is not the oldest bridge, my word. No, no, isn't it amazing? Yeah. yeah. To think it's lasted that long. Yeah. So the new bridge will replace that single lane bridge. So, yeah, we're going to have two lanes, I guess. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, yeah. And that's, that's over the Clutha, isn't it? The Clutha River? Yes. Is that the Clutha yeah. there? State Highway 8 over the Clutha yes, River. Yes, that's right. So it's a really, really powerful river. No, that's right. Um, yeah, so the the new uh, two-lane bridge was it will be finished they started a building in january this year and they expect to have it completed in the second half of 2024 so it'll be quite strange because you know i'm so used to stopping at those lights you know because it's a one-lane bridge so my my ride home will be quite different it's going to be two-way fantastic you'll be able to see people coming the other way and you won't have to wait exactly yes i know and i won't i'll have to make sure that my snacks are already open because that's normally where i open them so yeah. gonna, oh, oh well, that would yeah. be interesting this takes a long time doesn't it it's quite a feat of engineering i imagine it is going over such and imagine a fierce bridge how yeah. difficult it would have been in, yeah, river, in the 1887 yes who built it amazing things if it's yeah. taking them that long now imagine how yeah. hard it would have been then when they before they had all the equipment that we've got now and the, the you know the the sheer technology we've got now uh, exactly they, yeah they really were pioneering weren't they people when they they really they were and imagine the hard work it would have taken to yeah in, during that construction as yeah, well incredible yeah. mm, and you probably wouldn't have been able to drive you know backwards and forwards home every night no. camped out and yeah, yeah. they'd have been at the pub. need to appreciate those people we really do. We appreciate you. We salute you for, for giving us the exactly the to, to, to thrive and develop our region. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, good. Very good. And, um, such a pretty drive too. I really like going over that bridge. It's always really, it won't be quite so exciting when it's safe because it's always quite, you know, a bit of a thrill driving over that rickety bridge. Well, it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually because I sort of took a little walk up, up the bridge to take the photos because oh, yeah. it was so foggy. Mm. Um yeah, and it was, it was it was the first time I've actually ever walked on it, so which was ah. quite quite strange. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. only ever driven over it. So well, it's probably yeah. just as well you did because it won't be with us for much longer. So no, actually, yeah. I just I just noticed this um, article from the from the Otago Daily Times. So yeah. it says when the Beaumont Bridge was completed, uh, it was described as a lasting monument of the undoubted excellence of New Zealand workmanship. Marvelous. So that says it all. Well done, them. Well, now I had uh, read some wonderful news, as um, you may have done, about the Endurance, Shackleton's wonderful ship. I, I remember reading South, and I also watched the TV series. Did you see that with, um, was it Kenneth Branagh as Shackleton? Oh, yeah. did no, I didn't. Oh, did. oh, it's amazing. No. You, if you get a chance to see it, watch it. But also his book, 
Shackleton's book South is an amazing book. And when he described the loss of the endurance, and it, and you could almost hear the bones of the ship cracking in the ice as it was crushed by that huge ice flow and and you know this the ship was breaking and disappearing on them and they it was not just their their means of getting home it it was part of them they it was part of the crew and it was well that's how it felt in the book and it was so sad you know it was as if great character in the book had died when that ship was crushed by the ice so i was absolutely delighted so that there's a happy ending to the story for the ship, at least the endurance has been found. And, and to think it was so well preserved, as so well, well preserved. Yes, Amazing. there was an, an article in BBC Science on the 9th of March, and they said scientists have found and filmed one of the greatest ever undiscovered shipwrecks, 107 years after it sank. And honestly, I thought it was lost personally, but the endurance. Exactly. The lost vessel of Antarctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton was found in early March at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. Endurance was spotted in the Weddell Sea at a depth of 3,008 metres. That seems like a very long way to me. For over two weeks, the subs had been searching for it, had combed a predefined search area, investigating various interesting targets before they finally uncovered the wreck site on the 100th. This is amazing. They found the wreck on the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's funeral. It's incredible, isn't it? Isn't it? Amazing. The days since the discovery have been spent making a detailed photographic record of the timbers and surrounding debris field and the wreck itself is a designated this is wonderful i like this the wreck itself is a designated monument under the international antarctic treaty and must not be disturbed in any way no physical artifacts have therefore been brought to the surface and i like that so do I. I like i like that it was there it's been well preserved um, it was crushed and everything by... stays together no one's yes. taking pieces away you no, know it's well i hope not i hope not i hope it can be protected because it was crushed by sea ice and sank in 1915 forcing shackleton and his men to make an astonishing escape on foot and in small boats and it's a huge heroic story mm. but the <laughs> other interesting thing about that was the uh so the ship's captain had recorded the ship's final location in his diary yes. and that was found 6k south of that location so frank go far, was it? a pretty amazing and yet, guy you think especially when you think how much the waters move you would think it would move yeah yeah so yeah. the word the name of the ship was enjoyed and i'm, I'm not superstitious Incredible. but you're not supposed to rename ships because a ship They're earns it it, it, it it inhabits its name and really that ship really has earned the title of endurance hasn't it really did and, and those and, men that were left you know, waiting yeah. to be rescued. Oh, yeah. But the fact that they were all rescued as well was just well, that's the thing. an amazing. No, nobody died. And that's, uh, you, no. it tends to be you're either in the Shackleton camp or the Scott camp. And I've always been in the Shackleton camp because it very much seemed that his priority was to get his men home. Yes, they were exactly. on an adventure. Yes, they really, really wanted to do this thing. But the most important thing was that they all survived and he exactly. got them back. He did not rest until they were all back no. safe. And the other interesting thing about um, Shackleton was uh, we shared recently uh, on our Facebook page and our Instagram uh, account uh, a photo of Robert McNabb, who's one of the library's ah, yes. major donors, with uh, with Ernest Shackleton. <gasps> so there's always a library connection somewhere yes. along the line. <laughs> and it's a really great photo. In in a sort of yeah, uh, sort of vicariously we are meeting Shackleton through a, a donor almost of, of the library. Exactly, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, 
two two degrees of separation, I guess. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it's an amazing story. Really love it. I'm really happy that that was found. So that was that was. Yeah. Who would have thought? It's been sitting, waiting for us to find it, or someone yeah. to find it at least. <laughs> yeah, actually, Port Chalmers has quite a good connection with Antarctic exploration. They can lay claim to the earliest visit from the Antarctic expedition um, in November 1894, because Port Chalmers hosted men from the Norwegian whaling and sealing ship Antarctic. Who oh, in, lovely. Yeah, in January 1895, they made the first substantiated landing on the Antarctic continent proper. So it's lovely that Port Chalmers has that connection to that very mm. first landing there. The port attracted further visits from Antarctic expeditions by making generous offers of goods and services. Robert Scott, as we know, visited the port, and I think there's a, a, a memorial to him there, a statue. Oh, there is too, yes. He visited the port with both Discovery and Terranova expeditions, lured by the promise of free coal. Bless them. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always a... Was a, a bribe you can have from the, yeah. the local local coal merchant John Mill. Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod and Endurance Expeditions also received assistance from the port, but it wasn't until 1928 that Port Chalmers was first used as a base for an Antarctic exp expedition, and that was by American aviator and explorer Richard E. Bird, who flew the Antarctic. So he got free use I of the harbour. Didn't know anything about him. Yeah. Well, yeah. They got free use of the harbour, wharf, sheds and docking facilities. Probably didn't need coal. It probably didn't, no. <laughs> and it also benefited from the contributions of local businesses, everything from a year's free frozen storage to chocolate. Well, that's good. Everybody needs chocolate. Hey. Yes. Running so, a bit of energy. Yes, so there's a really lovely connection there with Port Chalmers. And um, you can probably see more about that in the Port Chalmers Museum. Yes, you can. Artifacts yeah. there. So, Yes. And once again, I think we probably have run out of time for today's show. So I think yeah. we'll wrap up there. So uh, we'll say goodbye for now. Don't forget to tune in next week. We'll be on at 11 on Monday morning, 105.4 FM or 1575 AM. Or, of course, you can listen to the podcast. And we have a repeat airing of our show at 10 o'clock on Tuesday evening. So there's plenty of opportunities there to listen. Bye for now. Bye. Cheers.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.